Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Let's stand this morning for the reading of God's Word. We have been going through the Gospel of John, preaching through each chapter, sometimes two sermons a chapter. Um, And today we land on chapter 19, which is the story of the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior. And I am looking forward to preaching John 20, which is the story of Christ's resurrection. So I will treat this as a two-part sermon uh, because I cannot cover everything in one setting that I would like to cover. Uh, And the implications of the resurrection are many and they are powerful. Um, But I don't want to shortchange that because I do want to talk about this morning what Jesus did for us on the cross. So John chapter 19, this is page 905 in your pew Bibles. John 19, I'm reading verses 16 through verses 30. John says, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified, and so they took Jesus. And I am jumping kind of in the middle of the story for time's sake. Verse 17, And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. rolling dice to see who gets Jesus' clothes. And so, so the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Father, this morning we are eternally grateful and indebted, and yet we know we could never pay back this debt. We are just simply in awe of your grace and mercy and the sacrifice that you made so that we could have eternal life. We stand here this morning with reverence and serious joy and heartfelt gratefulness, honoring today the sacrifice you made for us. Help us to never take that for granted, to never make light of the cross of Calvary. I pray this morning that your word would find its lodging in our hearts and would transform us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last Sunday, I preached on chapter 18, Jesus' time in the Garden of Gethsemane. And now, as he is arrested in the Garden, It's the early morning hours, we say, we call it Good Friday. Reality, Jesus was probably crucified on a Wednesday or Thursday, but we have followed tradition in saying on Good Friday, it would have been between the hours of about 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. that Jesus is brought before the Jewish high priest. And the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so. Jesus gives him an answer that enrages the high priest. The 
Bible says the high priest tore his clothes, he rended his garments and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do you need any more witnesses? This is what gets Jesus killed. He does break the law if he claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God. If he is not, if they don't believe him, then he is guilty of blasphemy, punishable by death. Around 6 to 8 o'clock that morning, after Jesus has been up all night, they lead Jesus from the house of the high priest to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And it is here that Pilate asks Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus would answer him, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate takes Jesus back out to the Jews and says, I find no fault in him. Pilate does not have a dog in this fight. He has no vested interest. I don't really see what this man has been doing that's so egregious and worthy of death. There was a custom that on the Passover, the Romans would release a prisoner to the Jews. And Pilate's wife comes to him. These are non-believers in any capacity of the one true living God. But Pilate's wife comes to him and says, Do not have anything to do with this righteous man, because today I have suffered because of a dream that I had about him last night. So Pilate asked the crowd, Which of these two men should I release to you? Because they have another man in their custody named Barabbas. Barabbas is a convicted criminal. The crowd cries out, Give us Barabbas. And you can feel the mob mentality taking over. These people are bloodthirsty and they would rather have Jesus who blasphemed, they would rather have him crucified and release this man called Barabbas. They don't see what's going on, but Barabbas is such a a type of us. Like we were the ones that were worthy of the wrath and the death and instead Jesus stood in our place. Even the name Barabbas, Bar-Abbas. Bar means son. Simon, son of, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. In Jewish tradition today, they have a bar mitzvah. It is for a male. It's a young man going into adulthood. It represents a man. It is the son. And Abbas is Abba. Romans, wherefore we cry, Abba, Father. Abba simply means Father. So what is even Barabbas' name means? It means the Son of the Father. They couldn't, they were so blind, they couldn't even see that this man that they're, they're crying out for to release, they're asking for the wrong Son of the Father because the other man over here is also the Son of the living God, and they missed it. Pilate says to the crowd that's chanting, I find no fault in Jesus. What should I do to him? And the crowd in a frenzy starts crying, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate says, what evil did he do? Tell me why. And the only response they have is crucify him. We know it's a mob mentality because the Bible says that Pilate can tell that a riot is about to begin. Like if I don't do something here, things are going to get out of control. So Pilate goes, he gets a basin of water, and he washes his hands in front of the people, and he says, I am innocent of this man's blood. I don't want anything to do with it. See to it yourselves. And the crowd of Jews chants back to him, and the people yell out, His blood be on us and our children. And so it has. It is here that Jesus is beaten with a whip. And we don't know the details from Scripture, but the most reliable first century historian that we have is a man named Josephus who gives us a lot of insight about what goes on in that day and he says that it was common before a person was crucified because crucifixion is common. This is a regular occurrence. Josephus is the one that tells us when you go into Rome, because this is in Jerusalem, Josephus says if you go into Rome, as you enter the road to Rome, there are people crucified on both sides of the highway. It's a message to anybody that comes into this city that if you break the law in this town, that's that's what happens to you. And Josephus tells us that when they would whip people, because the, the whip is a cat of nine tails, it's infused with glass and bone, so that when it hits the back of our Messiah, it rips out the flesh. And Josephus said it was common for people's insides to be completely exposed before they were hung on the cross. 
the Roman soldiers then escalated the physical and mental cruelty. They make a crown of thorns. They slam it on his head, piercing his skin. They put a purple robe on him to represent his kingship. They're mocking him. Here's your crown, King Jesus. Here's your purple robe. Here's a reed, just like a king would have. And then they started sure, bowing down to him, saying, Hail the King of the Jews. They're mocking him as they slapped him in the face. They spit on him, the Bible says. They took the reed out of his hand and began to hit him in the head with this. I hate injustice, and we have heard a massive amount the last two or three years about social injustice. And I'm on board. I don't want to see anybody mistreated. But get as riled up as you want to about that. Nobody in the history of humanity has faced greater injustice because no one was less worthy of what he had coming to him than a man who is the spotless Lamb of God, deity in humanity, and this is how he was treated. We think we're treated unfairly sometimes in life because of our faith, not because of our faith, just in general. No one was ever more mistreated than Jesus. Around 8 o'clock that morning, Jesus is tasked with carrying his own cross to Golgotha, the place of the execution. He is likely far too weak from the beatings and the torture. So a Roman soldier goes in the crowd and he pulls a man. I'm sure at random he looked and sized up the crowd and said, I think that guy could carry that cross. And What's your name, sir? And My name's Simon. Simon, you're going to carry that cross for this man. And so Simon carries the cross the rest of the way. Jesus is crucified between two other common criminals, nails driven in his hands and his feet, but also likely tied with ropes to the horizontal beam. And there Jesus was naked. Our paintings don't do it justice. We, we try to show some respect in our paintings of crucifixions. Even in the movies that have the crucifixion, we're not going to But in reality, what we know about crucifixions is that was part of the shame. We're going to hang this man on a cross for the entire city to see, exposed, knock on your neighbor's door. Hey, that guy that claimed to be the Messiah, they arrested him last night. They crucif they're crucifying him right now. Let's go, let's go to the place of the skull and let's just see what's going on. Onlookers, gazers, but also his family and his own mother. The eternal logos. The Word of God made flesh, dying on a cross as the soldiers gambled for His clothing. And what does He do? On the cross, He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The essence of Christianity isn't always laying hands on the sick and um, the miraculous, the power gifts that we talk about. The essence of Christianity is to be like Jesus. Could I honestly say to people who just did that to me, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. That is the sobering story of the crucifixion. But what are the implications of this story for us? So the path this morning, it's two parts. I wanted to tell you the story. I just feel like on every Resurrection Sunday, I like to recount the story of what happened to him, but what are the implications for us? And that's what I want to spend the remainder and really the bulk of the time talking about. What does the crucifixion of Jesus mean for us? I grew up hearing John 4.24 quoted often in the King James Version. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Most modern translations get that first part a little more accurate in that it simply says God is spirit. It's not God is, he's not just a spirit. God is spirit. It is his nature. It's who he is. He's not made up of material and atoms and cells. He's, he's a spirit. And we know there is a spirit world. It is the Holy Spirit that dwells within believers. And the Holy Spirit is not a force. It's not like a, a force like out of Star Wars, the force. No, the Holy Spirit is the person of God Himself. The Holy Spirit is God and dwells within believers, but it's a spirit. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, He likens it to the wind. It's just, you can't see where it's coming from or where it's going. You hear the sound, but it's, it's invisible. The spirit is like the wind. But the God who is spirit, 
created a very material world. In the creation poem of Genesis 1, don't miss the idea that the God who is spirit is the God who created the material world. And then he said, it is good. What I created, the, the universe, the trees, the mountains, the sea, all of this is good. And this world, with all of its beauty and all of its brokenness, is, however, groaning, Romans 8, is groaning under the weight of sin. It was a sin that entered the world through the transgression of Adam and Eve. It was sin that drove Adam and Eve out of their cosmic temple, because that's what Eden is. It is a cosmic temple. A temple is a place where God comes down and meets man. And this is what happened in Eden. It is a garden. The imagery there is unmistakable. It is a garden temple where God came down and communed with them and the Bible says walked with them in the cool of the day. It was the curse of sin that would be felt by every person who has lived since. Every human being who has ever lived has suffered under the curse of sin. There is not a person in this room, I don't care how young, who does not feel the weight of sin. The effects of a sinful world, the weight of past sinful mistakes, the suffering, the tears, all because we live in a broken world because sin entered into the picture. And sin severed that relationship between God and His creation. And no one is exempt from it because it is our default nature. David said, I was born in sin and shaped in iniquity. It's simply who I am. That's the reality, but that is not the finale. Because the story does not end in Genesis. The entire whole of Scripture from the fall is a story of the coming of the Son of God to redeem fallen creation. God is in the process right now of making everything right. The restoration of all things is coming. It's coming in the future with His second coming to this earth where He will restore and make things right. But the victory that secured that restoration is not coming. The victory was secured 2,000 years ago on a cross by the Son of the living and eternal God. God is spirit. Jesus is not a creation of that spirit. Jesus is not a created being. If Jesus were a created being, He could not be God. And Jesus is God. John 1, in the beginning was the Word. John is echoing, without question, Genesis 1. The first, three the first three words of Genesis 1, in the beginning. John writes this. He knows he's going to capture people's attention. In the beginning, we're going back to the creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Everything in the universe was made. Who made it? The Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's talking about Jesus. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now hear what the writer of Hebrews says. The writer of Hebrews, we don't know who the author is, but he starts off Hebrews 1 long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament. God spoke to us through the prophets, through Scripture. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is, who is the He? It's Jesus. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, and He is the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power the universe continues to operate like it does for one reason is because because god through christ jesus wills it to be so through his word that's what hebrews 1 3 is saying jesus the messiah was and is the god man the holy spirit overshadowed mary and she conceives a child a man, a person, a human being just like you and I. This is what I want you to see this morning is that Jesus was humanity. He lived among a very material world. He became flesh. He steps out of the heavens and into our economy so that he could pay the price of our redemption for my sins. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us. 
divinity and humanity were woven together within the womb of a virgin. Amniotic fluid, an umbilical cord, were the first surroundings of the Son of God. He was earthy. He was human. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was baptized in water on this planet. He was baptized in a river that you can go visit today. He almost certainly worked a job for many years under the hot sun. He attended weddings and funerals and sometimes provided the wine for them. He slept at night and he took naps in boats. He knew how to fish and he knew how to cook that fish over a fire. That's the Jesus that we're talking about. He was made flesh. He ate bread, he drank wine, he got angry. We see he cried. One particular place says he rejoiced. If you really study that out, it's an exuberant laughter. He rejoiced. He was a person just like you and I, a human being. He had hands that could receive nails and a torso that could receive a spear. He had a head that could receive a crown of thorns and a, a back that could bleed from a whip that was laced with bone. He was in, and here's the word, he was in can you grab him a chair? Just, just take that one there. Just take that one there. So here's the, here's the point I want you to see. He was in nearly every way just like us. Nearly every way except one. We are sinners and he is not. Hebrews 9, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a system of sacrifices. It's really complicated, but there were five types of sacrifices. The sacrifice for the purification of sin is found in the book of Leviticus. If you were a sinner, we all are, so if you lived in the Old Testament as a children of the Israelites, you would first go and confess your sin, and then you would bring a lamb that was without defect. That lamb had to be healthy, and you would then lay your hands on the lamb's head, and it was a symbolic transferring of my sin into this lamb, and then they, the priest would slay the animal by cutting its throat. And there were several more steps after that that the, the priest would perform. Why? is because without the shedding of blood, the Bible says there is no remission of sins. The writer of Hebrews would say, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for Me. In the text we read this morning, the last words of Jesus on the cross when He cries out, It is finished. Remember the, the high priestly prayer, if you were here two weeks ago in John 17, we, we walked through the prayer of Jesus to His Father. That's all John 17 is. We call it the high priestly prayer. And Jesus begins the prayer and says, This is eternal life. They have known you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorify you on the earth, Jesus says in His prayer. I have accomplished the work of that you gave me to do. In other words, it's finished. Mission accomplished. The redemptive plan that started in Genesis and flowed through the covenants that God made with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David throughout the Old Testament, He's making all these covenants, but these covenants are pointing toward the new covenant of the blood of Jesus. The law, the prophets, the scriptures, they're all pointing to Jesus and His redemptive work. The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. When John would step out into the scene, John the Baptist, and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, not of a nation anymore, not of a certain ethnic people, but the sins of the entire world. It encapsulates every single person can come to the foot of the cross. It does not matter the color of your skin. It does not matter how much money you make. It does not matter your status in life. It doesn't matter how many mistakes you've made in the past. It is irrelevant. Every person is invited to the foot of the cross. And at the foot of the cross, we all stand on equal ground. It is finished. 
So Jesus is crucified about 9 o'clock that morning, and he lives for another six hours until about 3 p.m. And around noon, darkness covers the whole land. Luke says the sun's light failed. I don't take this as a coincidental astronomical event. Rather, the cosmos was hemorrhaging at the sight of its creator's agony. There is an earthquake and nature itself is revolting against the greatest injustice ever perpetrated upon a man. Inside the temple, the Bible says that the curtain that separated the most holy place, the curtain was rent and it makes a point to say rent from the top to the bottom, torn in two, signifying that just as the flesh of Christ was being ripped apart, this is not my analogy. This analogy is made by the writer of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews says, just as the flesh of Jesus was ripped open at the crucifixion, the veil in the temple being torn in two signified that now, not one day a year on what the Jews celebrate today is Yom Kippur, the most holy day of the year on their calendar, not one day a year in the Old Testament when one man, the high priest, could go in and experience the manifest presence of God that comes down upon the Ark of the Covenant. No, the veil is torn now and every single believer has access daily into the place of communion where God manifests, He tabernacles Himself into our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the image that's going on here. This is what happens on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out. God is now tabernacling inside every true believer His Holy Spirit. All of us, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl can enter into the Holy of Holies and have access to the presence of God. Less than 24 hours earlier, Jesus is having dinner with His disciples and now redemptive history is being made. It is this finished work that is our salvation. Christ won the victory on the cross. So what are the practical implications of this? Well, we could say that we now have salvation. We don't have to suffer under God's wrath for our sins and we could be saved. And I would say, yes, that's true. But that doesn't capture the entirety of what God is doing in the world, namely restoring His creation back to its original glory before man sinned. The man's name is Wendell Berry. I don't know how many of you have heard of Wendell Berry. He is now 88 years old. He is one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. Wendell Berry was born on a farm in Kentucky where seven generations of berries worked the earth. He left the farm, now think he's 88 years old, still alive, so in his 20s, which was decades ago. He left the farm. He left behind rural Kentucky. I don't want to be a farm boy anymore. I'm going to make something of myself. And he goes to Stanford University in California. At Stanford, he studies under a guy named Wallace Stigner, who was a famous Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. He is going from farm boy to high society. He's going places. Even at Stanford, he begins to make a name for himself as a young man. He travels the world in his 20s at a time when nobody travels the world. He was awarded the Guggenheim Fellowship, which in that world was and is today a really big deal. It's a, it's a scholarship. He studies in France. He studies in Italy. He ends up in his late 20s in New York City teaching at New York University. Wendell Berry is going to be a big deal. And at 30 years of age, Wendell Berry and his wife pack up their Volkswagen, leave New York City, drive back to Kentucky to the farm he grew up on, and he has never left that spot since. He decided he was not willing to trade his soul for what he truly loved. Now, if you are a rising star in the literary world, New York City is where you want to be. And moving back to the farm in Kentucky is certain death to your career. His friends mourned his decision. What a waste, they said. Oh, what the world will miss because Wendell has killed his writing career. You're not going to be a successful writer, Wendell, living on your family farm in Kentucky. Wendell Berry, in his lifetime, has written 80 books. He is a national treasure in the literary world. He has been awarded uh, a medal of recognition by the President of the United States. And he writes all of his books from a simple, modest study in Kentucky. He does not own a computer, 
He writes his books by hand. He then hands them to his wife who edits them and then they send them to the publisher. If you want to reach him today, you cannot call his cell phone because he does not have one. He will accept a handwritten letter if you want to talk to Wendell Berry. Probably a pretty eccentric character. But what Berry often writes about, and the reason I talk about him this morning, is because he writes about the world that God created. Places, the ground, writes a lot about farming, writes a lot about the dirt, the earth, place, home. Wendell Berry said just so many good things that he wrote, but he said, I am not bound for any public place, but for the ground of my own where I have planted vines and orchard trees, and in the heat of the day climbed up into the healing shadow of the woods. Better than any argument is to rise at dawn and pick dew-wet red berries in a cup. He said, if we cannot afford to take good care of the land that feeds us, we are in an insurmountable mess. The atmosphere, the earth, the water, the water cycle, those things are good gifts. The ecosystems, the ecosphere, they are good gifts. We have to regard them as gifts because we couldn't make them. We have to regard them as good gifts because we couldn't live without them. Now, I don't look to Wendell Berry as a theologian or look to him as a guide to my faith. My readings of Wendell Berry have kind of like the readings of one of my favorite authors, Annie Dillard, um, really not sure where they are in their faith journey. Um, So I don't look to Wendell Berry for those things. I mention him because he has a wonderful grasp of God's creation. There has been this idea in Christianity for the past 100, 200 years that the physical world is all bad, that all that matters is the spiritual, and that the physical world can go to hell in a handbasket because that's where it's going because I have a spirit that's going to live forever. I would submit to you that that is not a biblical view at all of God's creation. God made everything. And then God said seven times, it is good, it is good, it is good. The Spirit of God chose to make everything that we know and see. The world, the Bible said, is framed by the Word of God. And it is a mistake within Christianity to look at the spiritual as the only thing that matters and to look at God's creation as something that is not holy and not eternal. We think of ourselves as eternal souls, and that we are. We all have a soul that will live on forever. But we will not live forever in eternity as a disembodied soul. We will live in a real physical creation. The people of God will live forever in a very material, physical world and a glorified, resurrected body. Paul said at the resurrection, which is what we're celebrating today, that we will have a body like as unto His glorious body. Jesus said, here, touch touch the the scars. See there where they put the nails? Touch those. I'm flesh and, and blood and bone. You can feel me. You can touch me, even in my resurrected state. It's just that when we get to that point in the resurrection, there is a body that will never be afflicted by pain and suffering. It is a body that will never die. We are going to live in a glorified, resurrected state at the time of the coming of Jesus in a world that knows no sorrow, no tears, no suffering, no heartbreak, no phone calls at three in the morning that rattle your world, that turn everything upside down. That is the promise of the child of God. Hear the words of the writer of Hebrews. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait His return. I find nowhere in Scripture where it says Jesus will return and we will all go away to another place. I simply don't find that in the text and I don't find that implied in the text. It baffles my mind how we can build these doctrinal structures with enormous implications, with biblical assumptions that have absolutely no load-bearing support underneath them given by Scripture. 
I grew up singing songs like, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Jesus is going to come, get me out of here, and I'm going to fly away to another place. And I submit to you that there's nowhere in Scripture. It does not exist. It, the idea is not in the Bible. Well, what about that Scripture where it says two will be in the bed and one taken and one remains, and two will be in the field, one taken? Like you've got to read that scripture in context. Read what Jesus is talking about before that. He's talking about the, the flood and the judgment that came upon the world and talks about those that were taken as those who were judged. In the scenario, in that story, you don't want to be one of the two people at the mill that are taken. That is, in this context of that story, taken means God's judgment has come upon you. There's no context there for an idea of us leaving this world. And I understand the sentiment behind the song, but this world is actually our home. It's God's good creation, and He is going to return and restore it back to its intended glory and perfection. You and I cannot comprehend what this world was like before sin entered into the picture. He is going to return. I want to make that clear. I believe in the return. I don't think you can be an Orthodox Christian and deny the future return, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to come back and restore creation to its perfection. And we will rule and reign with Christ in a new creation, a restored glory throughout all eternity. Say, okay, here's where I want to be clear. Make no mistake, because I've, I've preached an Easter sermon and not talked about the one of the things that I am most passionate about. And that is that the cross was about God's wrath being poured out upon the body of Jesus. If you attend regularly, you hear me sneak this into sermons all the time as the core of the gospel. The wrath of God poured out upon the body of Jesus. The Son of God absorbing the punishment for me. Whose sin? Mine. Whose body? The body of Jesus. He took on my sins so he says, I'll take your sins, and in return, I will impute to you righteousness on the basis of my faith in him. I am made righteous, I am declared righteous in the courtroom of the universe by God on the basis of my faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. That is the essence of the gospel. Make no mistake, God hates sin. Sin offends God. And it requires absolute, sinless perfection to be saved. You cannot be saved without absolute, sinless perfection because my sin offends a holy God. And that's a problem because I do not have a sinless perfection in my nature. I can't do it. You can be moral. You can live pure. You can pay your taxes and be a good citizen and live as morally pure as you can. That does not make you holy. The only thing that makes you holy is the essence of God's nature, which is holiness and light, coming into your life. My righteousness is an imputed righteousness. I am being saved on the righteousness of Christ. My righteousness is his filthy rag. So he trades. It's the great exchange. I give him my sins upon his body on the cross. He gives me his righteousness. And when I stand before God in judgment, if I'm standing there in, in judgment... And Jesus says, why do you think you got here? Why do you think you made it? I am not going to say, well, I, I'm going to fall at my feet. I'm going to cast my crown before him. And I'm going to say, I'm here because of you. That's the basis of my salvation, is what Jesus did for me on the cross. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul said, for the law of the Spirit of Christ has set me free from the law of sin and death. For God has done through Christ what the law could not do. Because Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin and took my sins away. Make no mistake, the cross was about God's wrath being poured out. That's the essence of the gospel. If you want to know how much God hates sin, look at the suffering of the cross that day. The only reason why Jesus had to suffer is that you and I, if we're ever going to be saved, our sins must be accounted for. 
God keeps good books and every sin ever committed by every person must be reconciled by the wrath of God. It's either reconciled through my punishment or it's reconciled through the cross. That's the beauty and the glory of the gospel. The reason why I did not make that the core of this sermon today is because if you're a member of this group, you're going to hear me talk about, this is called substitutionary atonement. Jesus stood in my place. He was the substitute. You're going to hear me talk about it all the time. I work it into sermons. It is central to my theology. I love that doctrine. But what I am doing here today is expanding our vision of the gospel and expanding our understanding of the cross. Because it is about that, but it is not just about that. There is a bigger picture. And the bigger picture is God is making his creation right. That's what he's doing. That is the grand, if you're looking for the grand narrative, the grand story of the Bible, it's that God created a very good world. I, the older I get, the more I, I, I wasn't this way when I was younger, but the older I get, the more I have learned to appreciate God's creation. I'm talking about in nature. I'm talking about the mountains and the ocean and all the creation. I've learned to enjoy that as God's good gift. And that is what it looks like in a fallen world. But God has taken his creation. Paul said in Romans 8, the creation itself is groaning, awaiting its adoption, its redemption. And then he says, not only the creation only, but we ourselves are awaiting the redemption of our bodies. He is going to appear a second time. And when he appears again, he's not coming to deal with sin. He did that on the first trip. Second trip back, he says, I am appearing to save those who eagerly await my return. Now, I don't know when Jesus is coming back. He might return in our lifetime and he might not. It's a friend of mine in a seminary class said, they asked the professor, are you pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib? And the professor said, are those my only options? <laughs> That's me. I read the Revelation drastically different and with a different group of people. Uh, and I'll tell you what I see in the Revelation. I see hope. When Paul talked about the return of Jesus, he said, comfort one another with these words. The return of Christ is not supposed to scare us. It's supposed to be our absolute comfort and hope. That's what's coming. That's the next big event. And it might happen in my lifetime, and it might not. Don't forget that every generation, especially the last 300 years, every generation has been sure that Jesus is coming back. And I will say this, if you read the Revelation, the last book of the Bible in one hand, and the Old Testament in the other hand, you will read it very differently than if you read it in one hand with your newspaper in the other hand. Because don't forget the Revelation was written not to us, but to a group of seven first century churches. And if you want to understand it, you must ask yourself, how would they have understood this writing of John? It is the first principle of biblical interpretation. And we all adhere to it in the first 65 books of the Bible. We can't get away from that in the last book of the Bible. How would they have understood that book to, to mean? That's the beauty of the future of the resurrection. And that's a sermon for another time. If Jesus comes back in my lifetime, that's great. If he doesn't, I'm going to go down, and this will be the, this will be the sneak preview of John 20, is 1 Corinthians 15. Paul said, your body going into the ground is like a seed that is planted. And that seed, that body going into the ground at the resurrection is going to bring forth a harvest. Your body is going to be resurrected at that day. The resurrection is not, has not a future event. The, the resurrection of the dead is not something that will start in the future. It has already started. It started 2,000 years ago when the man Christ Jesus rose again on that what we call Resurrection Sunday. It's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection. And time means nothing to God, so he doesn't mind waiting a couple millennia. But there is coming a day, as sure as I'm standing here, if that Bible is true at all, if it's not, please stop giving to this church. Please stop wasting your time on Sunday mornings. Please don't ever read your Bible or attend church again because if the Bible is not true about this, it's not true about anything. But we as people of faith, we believe 
that there is coming a day when the dead in Christ shall rise. The dead in Christ will rise. So whether it happens in my lifetime or not is irrelevant. And I close with this. I close this morning with the words of a song written by Chris Tomlin. My favorite rendition is, you can find it on YouTube, it's by a guy named Andrew Peterson, where he sings and plays piano and there's a massive choir behind him. And I am not a singer, I wish I were, so I'm not gonna sing this to you, um, but I'll read you the words of the song. And so this song is a, we talked about this a few weeks ago, I asked how many people knew what a catechism is and not something that a lot of people do. I said, but there's a lot of power in a catechism. In a catechism, usually people associate that with a Roman Catholic faith, but it's not. Um, it can be a great tool for teaching children. And all a catechism is, is you ask a question, and then there is a response that is given. So the most well-known catechism is the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism. And the first question in the catechism is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer to that, then, in response would be, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And there's a hundred and something questions like that. So this song is structured like a catechism in the sense that Andrew Peterson sings and then all the choir does is give a two-word response. The choir gives an answer. So in the first line of the song, the singer would sing solo, do you feel the world is broken? And the, the choir would, the massive choir would simply sing, we do. And so this is a call and response. I want you to see how this works. But I want you to hear the words of this song because it has captured the essence of what I've preached about this morning as well as anything I know. It says, do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new. We do. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. Then the Course says, is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave, he was David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this? He is. Does the Father truly love us? He does. Does the Spirit move among us? He does. And does Jesus, our Messiah, hold forever those He loves? He does. And here's my favorite line. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? He does. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave, he is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. From every people and tribe, from every nation and tongue, he has made us a kingdom and priests to God to reign with the Son. Is he worthy? He is. That's our hope this morning. Am I a sinner saved by grace? Yes. Did Jesus die on the cross for us? for our sins so that we could be saved, yes. And I, that is the essence of the gospel. But what I wanted to say this morning, that may be a little bit of an unusual Resurrection Sunday sermon, is that God is at work in a much bigger way than that. He is restoring His creation. And we as the people of God are going to live and rule and reign with Him forever. Paul said, I is not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for you. Your mind, my brain, cannot wrap our head around what a restored creation with Jesus our Messiah looks like. But we eagerly await it with hope. Our kingdom is not of this world. I have very little interest in so many of what goes on in the world just because I know that the 
president of today will soon be a footnote in the history books, but Jesus Christ rules and reigns forever. And that is my hope. Let's stand this morning. Let's pray, Father, this morning. You told us in your word that it would not return void, but that it would accomplish that which you have purposed. My hope this morning is, because I can't save anybody, salvation is a miracle. It's the greatest miracle of the new birth. That unless you open up the eyes of the heart, people won't see the light. But I pray this morning, Lord, that you are working through the power of your Spirit in the hearts and minds of all of us. There be somebody here this morning that doesn't know you, that you're doing a supernatural work among us to help all of us to see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray this morning now that your word would not be cast aside, but that it would be found with deep lodging in our hearts and our souls and our minds, that what we hear this morning, not my words, but Lord, your words, your word this morning, your word made manifest in flesh would dwell inside of us and would change us in mighty ways, Lord. Reorient our priorities. Change, Lord, today our values. Help us, Lord, to be sanctified, to reflect your image more perfectly so that on a job on Tuesday afternoon or in the home, Lord, that we would more perfectly reflect your glory, Lord, today. And in return, we give you all praise, all glory, and all honor. We ask this in the name above every name, the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen. As they sing a song in dismissal this morning, God bless you. Cross.